My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And today we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to be looking today at chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 20 today. Now, this is uh, another part of the, the transition of Jesus starting to reveal who he is as a Messiah. And it's also part of him revealing a little bit more about his connection to the prophecies in the Old Testament. And what we have here in Matthew chapter 16 is you've kind of got two groups here starting to work together and they traditionally were enemies. They were people who didn't really like each other, which was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the fact that you've got two enemies coming together uh, shows you how important Jesus was for them to be united in their, their almost disdain and hatred for him. So let's pick it up today in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and he said to them, when it is evening, you'll say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So much in this where the Pharisees and the Sadducees show their deep fear by working together to come against Jesus. And it shows that they really regarded him as a serious threat. Uh, William Barclay said, It's an extraordinary phenomenon to find a combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They both stood for beliefs and policies which were diametrically opposed. So they came together. Who's their common enemy? Jesus. The Pharisees lived according to the oral law, the the, the law that was spoken and passed down by verbal tradition, as well as the scribal law that was which was written. And the Sadducees only received that which was the written law of the Hebrew scriptures only. And the Pharisees believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Uh, Paul actually used this division in Acts chapter 23. The Pharisees were not a political party and wanted to have nothing to do with politics. They were prepared to live under any government as long as the government would leave them alone to practice their their way of life. The Sadducees were uh, aristocrats and they wanted to collaborate with the Roman government to keep their wealth and their power. But for all of their differences between the two of them, what, what united them? Their hatred of Jesus. And I think that that's no different now. That, you know, People who have two opposing views, but they'll both say, we don't like Jesus. Uh, they came together nonetheless. Uh, they said by testing him and asking, asking him to show them a sign from heaven, as if you know, he, they hadn't seen enough signs already. Jesus had already done so many signs in front of them and they're still unconvinced. Uh, and they're saying, oh, we're looking for a, a sign from heaven, like, you know, maybe like calling down fire from heaven. Uh, they, they, basically, they were saying, we're not convinced by the signs on earth that we've already seen. 
Jesus had already been asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12. And in response, he'd already pointed them to the sign of Jonah. So this is why the reference to Jonah comes up again, because tradition held that a sign that was done on earth actually could be a counterfeit from Satan. But signs done in heaven or from the heavens uh, were assumed to be from God. Uh, R.T. France said the immediate demand of the Jewish leaders for a sign from heaven contrasts sharply with the Gentile crowd's response to Jesus' miracles in Matthew chapter 15. So Jesus says, you, you are hypocrites. You really are. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the sign of the times. So Jesus actually condemns their hypocrisy. They felt very confident about predicting the weather uh, when they saw signs, but they were blind about regarding Jesus as the Messiah, even though they saw the signs and his credentials right before their very eyes. D.A. Carson, the proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. Great point. Uh, and Jesus wasn't the only person to notice the hypocrisy of the day. The Jews of Jesus' day had a proverb saying that if all the hypocrites in the world were divided into 10 parts, Jerusalem would contain nine of the 10 parts. That's how much they knew uh, there was hypocrisy amongst them all. And so Jesus says, you cannot discern the times. Jesus said this of the religious leaders of his own day regarding the signs of his first coming. There were prophecies, there were circumstances, uh, there were evidence that should have made it very clear to them that signs of the times were present that the Messiah had actually come. And many people today are still blind to the signs of the times regarding the second coming of Jesus. We, we, we can see signs. We know Jesus is coming back. So Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. This statement of Jesus reminds us that signs alone do not convert anybody to Christianity. Uh, there is an inner conviction that needs to be fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's easy, I think, to place too much confidence in signs uh, and wonders in a way to bring people to faith in Jesus. Now, I do know that there are in some, some countries that uh, to lead people to Jesus you, you, you have to pray that the Holy Spirit will show them a sign and convict them as they see the sign that that sign means that Jesus is real. So it's not that, the, it's not that we shouldn't ask for signs, but the signs themselves without the conviction of the Holy Spirit don't do anything. And the problem is that it's not that the signs themselves are weak. It's a wicked and adulterous generation is the one that seeks after them. And the Bible gives so many repeated examples of those who saw incredible signs but did not believe. So Jesus says, as he makes reference to Jonah again, no sign shall be given to it, this generation, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus pro promised a sign that would have power to bring people to faith. What was it? His resurrection. Because he had previously mentioned the sign of the prophet Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, towards the end of that chapter. Very clearly connecting that as an explanation of his coming resurrection. So let's remember some of the similarities between the story of Jonah and Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting. Jonah sacrificed himself so that others would be saved. Jonah disappeared from all human view during this time. Nobody could see him. 
Jonah was sustained even in the days that he couldn't be seen when he was in the belly of the fish. Jonah came back after three days as if he was coming back from the dead. People assumed, you know, imagine somebody's been swallowed by a fish, uh, then you assume they're dead. And then Jonah came back from that. And then after that, Jonah preached repentance. So that's the first four verses of Matthew chapter 16. So let's move on. Verse 5. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning the bread? but to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Can you imagine like Jesus going, oh, the... (sighs) Jesus gives the warning to the disciples using the metaphor of leaven. He wasn't talking about the actual bread. Remember, leaven always represents, often represents the poison. And as noted in the previous parable of the leaven in Matthew 13, it's a picture of sin, leaven. Uh, It's a picture of corruption. Uh, It particularly was in the the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 12. And Barclay says this, It was the Jewish metaphorical expression for an evil influence. To the Jewish mind, leaven was always symbolic of evil. Leaven stood for an evil influence, liable to spread through life and to corrupt it. And so the disciples, they haven't caught on to this yet. It's because we've taken no bread. So, which is just a very strange concern when you think about all the things that Jesus had done, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000. They just didn't understand Jesus at all, all here. And they weren't grabbing a hold of the fact that he was using leaven as a metaphor. John Trapp says, Our memories are naturally like hourglasses. No sooner filled with good instructions and experiments than running out again. I love those little quotes. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine. Uh, Jesus was trying to impress upon them the importance of being on guard against false teaching. Uh, David Guzik had some interesting observations on this. Jesus charged his disciples with three things. Number one, ignorance, because they didn't understand that he was using material things, the leaven, to illustrate spiritual things. Secondly, he charged them with unbelief, because they weren't overly concerned with the supply of bread, or they were overly concerned with the supply of bread, I should say, when they had seen Jesus miraculously supply bread on several previous occasions. Why would you worry about whether there was bread or not when you've seen Jesus feed 5,000, then 4,000 with bread? And then thirdly, Jesus charges them over their forgetfulness. They seem to forget what he had done before in regarding to his miracles. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, 
Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? <sighs> Jesus withdraws from the mainly Jewish region of Galilee and he comes to a place that's more populated by Gentiles. And it was likely a retreat from the pressing crowds that were following him. Barclay says that Caesarea Philippi lies about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. The population was mainly non-Jewish and there Jesus would have peace to teach the 12 by himself. Now, one of the places we go to when we go to Israel, guess what is Caesarea Philippi? And you're going to come with me one day because it's an amazing place to see what happened there. And Jesus says to them, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He didn't ask this question because he didn't know who he was. He wasn't suffering an identity crisis uh, or because he was really overly concerned with the opinion of other people. He wanted this to be an introduction to a more important follow-up question. Now, you have to understand the importance of the geographical location that Jesus took them to, Caesarea Philippi. It's out of the area that they were normally in. It's in an area that is associated with idols and rival deities. Uh, William Barclay says this, The area was scattered with temples of the ancient Syrian Baal worship. Uh, hard by Caesarea Philippi, there rose a great hill in which was a deep cavern. And that cavern was said to be the birthplace of the great god Pan, the god of nature. In Caesarea Philippi, there was a great temple of white marble built to the godhead of Caesar. It is as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions in all their history and splendor and demanded to be compared to them and to have the verdict given in his favor. And when you come with me to see it, you can still see that cavern. You can still see the wall. You can still see all the temples. And you can imagine Jesus being in front of all these false gods and saying, okay, there's all the false gods that this area has, has worshipped, but who do people around here say that I am? So then we get on to uh, an amazing revelation here. So they said, all the disciples, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, all one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. People who thought Jesus was John the Baptist didn't know much about Jesus and they didn't know that Jesus and John had actually ministered at the same time. So I don't know why anybody would say that. But John, Elijah, Jeremiah, along with all the other prophets, were, they were national reformers and they stood up to the corrupt rulers of the day, which is why I think people started, they were like, well, the Messiah is going to stand up to the corruption. Some thought that Jesus should be a herald of national repentance, like John the Baptist. And some people thought that Jesus should be a, a worker of miracles like Elijah. And some people thought that he should speak the words of God like Jeremiah and the prophets. And perhaps in seeing Jesus in these roles, they were hoping for a super political leader and a super political reformer to come and overthrow the corrupt powers that were oppressing Israel. And the general tendency in all of the answers about who Jesus was, was basically to underestimate him. They were saying he's like great men, but he's not the Messiah. To give him a measure of respect and honor, uh, but to fall short of honoring him as the son of God. So he says, who do you say that I am? 
So Jesus then, this is the important follow-up question. Jesus says, who do you say? Now, Jesus had to ask them what they believed about him. And, and it's the question that is placed before you and I and every single living person. Because we are judged and will be judged based on our answer to this very question. This is it. Who do you say that I am? And we must answer this question, I think, every day, not just once. Jesus must be our Lord and Saviour every day. Not just Saviour Jesus on the day we accept his gift of salvation. Lord Jesus every day after he's become Saviour Jesus. And if we really believe Jesus is who he says he is, then it will affect the way that we live. And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter already knew the opinion of the crowd. And even though it was very complimentary towards Jesus, it wasn't accurate and it wasn't enough. And Jesus was much more than John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or any of the prophets. He was more than a national reformer. He was more than a miracle worker. He was Jesus the Christ the Messiah. And Peter understood that Jesus was not only God's Messiah, he was actually God himself. This is the revelation. And the Jewish people properly thought that to receive the title, the son of the living God, was to make claim to deity itself. And Jesus was. Now, R.T. France said, the, the adjective living, you are the son of the living God. That, that word living may perhaps have been included to contrast the one true God with the local deities in Caesarea Philippi, which was the center of the worship of Pan. So maybe they're looking at that and they go, they're gods, but they're not living. You're the living God. Just, just an observation. Peter understood something that, that was revolutionary and, and probably one of the reasons why he is, is listed at the beginning of every list of disciples in the Bible. So then let's move on to verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. An amazing exchange that we need to break down. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Jesus reveals that Simon wasn't just smarter than everybody else. He got it through divine inspiration. Even if he didn't fully realize what he was saying, Peter genuinely, genuinely blessed or was blessed by this divine inspiration, by the insight itself and by how it came to him. Now, we too often, I think, expect God to speak in strange and very unnatural ways. But here God spoke through Peter so naturally that he didn't even realize it was the Father in heaven who was revealing it to him right there and then. He didn't. So he, the words are just coming out and it's God the Father divinely inspiring him. It speaks about our own supernatural need for a revelation of Jesus and who he is. Spurgeon said, if you know no more of Jesus than flesh and blood has revealed to you, 
then it has brought you no more blessing than the conjectures of their age brought to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who remained an adulterous and unbelieving generation. So if you only believe as much as flesh and blood allows you to believe, then that's what the outcome will be. But when flesh and blood is added to by the divine inspiration of God, now through the power of the Holy Spirit to you and I, then we get who Jesus really is. And Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter. Now, this was not only recognition of Peter's more Roman name. Uh, it was also a promise of God's work in Peter. Now, the name Peter means rock, okay, uh, this, which is very important uh, because it actually means little pebble rock is what the name means. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter's confession of who Jesus is, Peter's, by his own testimony, did not see himself. Peter did not see himself as I, Peter, am the rock on which the church will be founded. He, Because Peter went on to write that we are living stones, but Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so we can say that Peter was really, truly the first believer, if you like, that he was the first rock among many rocks. And Peter said as much in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, coming to him as a living stone, coming to Jesus as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the reading of this verse in the Greek would be, and, and this is very important because this is something that people don't understand. The word where Jesus said, your name is Peter, which means little rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, was not Jesus saying upon this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And I'll tell you why. Because when he said Peter, he called him Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros, little pebble. Same as what he said in John chapter 1, verse 42. And then when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, he uses the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A, which means big rock, which cannot be moved. It's also a feminine word. You would never call a man Petra. It's a feminine word. And it could not be referring to Peter, but it must be referring to the confession. So Petra means a rock that is immovable. Peter was neither the foundation nor the builder. Only Jesus alone is the cornerstone. Only Jesus alone is the builder. What does he use in us is our understanding. Upon the understanding of the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that's what Jesus is going to build his church on. So Jesus effectively said, Peter, you are a little pebble. And on the immovable rock of your confession as to who I am, the Christ, the Messiah, I will build my church. That would be an accurate way to read that particular passage. Now, this is the first use of the word church in the New Testament, uh, or the Bible for that matter. And it uses the ancient Greek word ecclesia. And significantly, this was well before the beginnings of what we normally think of of the church in Acts chapter 2 which shows that Jesus was anticipating and prophesying, if you like, 
what would come from these disciples and these apostles and those who would believe in their message that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God. Now, interestingly enough, the ancient Greek word ecclesia is not a religious word at all. It just means a group of people or a called out group of people. And describing the later group of Jesus's followers and disciples, Jesus deliberately chose a word that did not have a deliberately religious or distinctive religious meaning. Also, this statement of Jesus was a very clear claim to ownership of the church because he said, my church, Jesus owns the church. He's the head of the church. The church belongs to Jesus. Another claim to Jesus' deity, that he's not just a man, he was God. On this rock, I will build something that belongs to me, my church, and I will build it into a stronghold, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The forces of death and darkness cannot prevail against or corrupt uh, or conquer the church, I should say. And this is a valuable promise in a very dark and discouraging time for the church. Uh, all the power of hell cannot conquer Jesus' church. It cannot happen. And Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The idea of Peter holding the keys of the kingdom has captured the imagination of many Christians throughout the centuries. Jesus had the keys to Hades and he gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And Peter had a special place amongst all the disciples and that he had some very special privileges. He's always first in the listing of the disciples. He's open, he opened the doors of the kingdom to, to the Jews, uh, of the kingdom to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. He used the keys to open the kingdom of heaven to start the church that was combined of both Jews and Gentiles. But there's no biblical argument whatsoever that Peter's privilege or authority was actually passed on to others after him, that the keys of the kingdom actually got to be passed on. To put it one way, you could say that Jesus gave Peter the keys but didn't give him the authority to then pass them on to further generations. And there's nothing in scriptures that Peter's authority was also to be passed on. Uh, so then Jesus goes on and says to Peter, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. The power for binding and loosing is something that the Jewish rabbis that, of that day actually used. And they bound or loosed an individual based on the application of a particular point of the Jewish law. And Jewish Jesus promises that Peter and the other the apostles, the disciples, would be able to now set new boundaries that were authoritative for the new covenant community that people could now be bound or loosed based on that was different than what was in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. This was authority that was given to the apostles and prophets to build a foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And we, we need to understand this as Jesus giving both the permission and the authority to the first generation apostles to make rules for the early church and indirectly the inspired writings that would guide all generations of Christians, including you and I. And binding and loosing is a key part of that. And as their rabbi, the disciples' rabbi, Jesus did this binding and loosing for his own disciples. Without using the same words, this is what Jesus did when he allowed them to take the grains of wheat in the field in Matthew chapter 12. 
and significantly when it came time to understand the dietary laws of the, the, the New Testament, uh, or, the, or the old covenant, I should say, in light of the new, the new covenant, God spoke to Peter first about that. Uh, he and the other disciples, guided by the Spirit of God, would bind and loose Christians regarding such parts of the old covenant. And he commands the disciples they should tell no one. Jesus was very pleased that his disciples were coming to know who he was, but he didn't want them to ruin the timeline. He was always aware of the timeline which leads us to our observation that Jesus wants to continue to use the revelation of who he is to build the church. It's so important. That's our job. That's why it doesn't matter which brick in the wall you want to be. It just matters that Jesus is your builder. Do what he wants you to do where he's placed you. Stop having brick envy of what other people have their place in the wall. Be the best little pebble you can be in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, guide us, we pray. Reveal this to us in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.